0: Good morning. How you guys doing? Good to see you. My name is Tim Porter. I'm one of the one of the leaders here. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Uh, one Sunday was uh, was awesome. I was on vacation, and last Sunday I was actually supposed to be here, and Josh had to had to help me out because I was shivering in bed. It was brutal. Uh, we, the whole the whole family got sick, so. Uh, we're through that, and we're, we're feeling better, and I'm here to, to pick up the torch and to walk us through this passage today, okay? So I was uh, sleeping through an episode of Shark Tank the other day, okay? I don't know if you guys, probably most people know what Shark Tank is. I don't have to do much explaining there. It's a, uh, a show that's been on for, I think, like 13 years. My wife and I have been married about 13 years, and this was our show. Okay, this is we started watching this together just after we got got married, just after we I guess we're dating at that point, and then we got married and we loved it. Both of us loved the loved the show, but I'm kind of over it. All right, I mean it's like, how many ways can you make a mousetrap better? All right? Isn't that the Isn't that the saying? We got to make a better mousetrap here. How many ways can we find to help alleviate our inconveniences there's got to be thousands and thousands of gadgets now that has come come through that show and I it just doesn't interest me anymore and it drives my wife crazy because she still loves the show so she's up you know ready to watch it and it's like oh we're gonna watch shark tank all right out you know best sleep I've gotten in in quite a while So anyway, so uh, I was trying to think, like, what kind of ridiculous things um, has Shark Tank come up with, these these gadgets that they've been coming up with for 13 years? And I spent, I think, maybe one minute of research on this and found, like, oh, that's plenty. That's, like, that's plenty. These are absolutely ridiculous. One was the... uh, the belt buckle, uh, couple or beer holder. I'm sure you don't put like a diet soda in there. You put a beer in this belt buckle that folds down, and it's got a little thing, and then you 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 can hang onto your beer without without holding it. I guess so. That that was a, a big inconvenience that somebody thought needed to be addressed. This <laughs> is kind of ridiculous. Um, the other one was uh, oh I don't know. Somebody was bothered by wrinkled sheets. I don't know, gals, you might have more. Uh, more understanding of why this is so inconvenient, but somebody made a contraption that you would put your sheets in in the dryer so you would never have wrinkled sheets again, which was a big problem, I guess. So we, they alleviated that problem. But my favorite was this t-shirt that I found. I don't actually see this show, but it's called the Sweatproof Hydro Shield Tee. Uh, you've got to hear the, the description of this t-shirt. It's, if I was smarter, I would have put this up so you could see it, but just listen to this. Keep embarrassing armpit sweat stains at bay with an undershirt that shields your button-downs from disaster. There's an extra layer of material under the armpit that's specially designed to be impenetrable by sweat. And it's also anti- antimicrobial to keep odor away. So this was, this was the other thing that we, that we had to come up with to keep the embarrassing pit stains from, from showing up on our undershirts. So you can buy the shirt or you can just roll with it, you know, and, and, just, and just go for it, you know. I, I don't know that we need it that bad. I actually did hear from a buddy of mine, this is some time ago, Keith Olson, who some of you might know. He went to Outward. He just moved to Texas. But he said his dad, <laughs> this is funny, his dad could pit out a Carhartt jacket. <laughs> Rick, this is dad, Rick needs this t-shirt with the diapers under the armpits, you know, to, to soak up this. Rick could usually use this. <clears throat> so this is, this is just a microcosm. Shark Tank is just a microcosm of what's going on in the world. Okay, we live not in a material world anymore, but we live in a Shark Tank world where we try to avoid pain, suffering, difficulty, challenging circumstances, even the most inconvenient uh, situations. We avoid those things like the plague, and that's what the world says we should do. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to deal with pain and suffering. You shouldn't have to deal with inconveniences. There's an app for that. There's a gadget for that. There's a way to avoid having to deal with that. It's not helpful, okay? Most of us do this, we try to avoid pain or we distract ourselves from pain and suffering and agony that we go through. That's mostly what we do. There are a few people that say you should embrace pain. Tom Brady just said this in his, uh, his documentary that he's doing. I just love to embrace pain, I wanna embrace pain because you never know, that pain may lead to something good, may lead to something positive, may lead to like seven Super Bowls, you never know. You, know? you should embrace pain. And for Tom Brady, it seems to have made some sense. He has won more Super Bowls than we can even count. I actually don't know if it's seven. I think it probably is. But what about about the guy whose pain does not lead to Super Bowls? (laughs) What about the guy or the gal whose pain leads to more pain, more suffering, more agony? The person that loses their job and thinks, nope, I'm going to embrace the pain, and uh, maybe there'll be a better job around the corner. But there isn't a better job around the corner. And now the marriage is suffering because he can't can't cover the the financial obligations of the marriage. And now there's more pain. Well, maybe there's a silver lining here, but there isn't another silver lining. Now he's drinking too much or whatever. You get the point. I don't want to paint like the, the most horrid picture. But embracing pain just to embrace pain is not a good solution. Neither is avoiding pain and suffering. Neither is distracting ourselves. From pain, suffering, and agony. So what's the solution? What's the solution for us this morning? We're going to find it in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see Jesus in agony. Okay, We're going to see how Jesus responds to the agony, and then we're going to see him enter into the agony. That's the solution for us. Okay? So before we, before we start reading our, our passage, I'm gonna, it's short so we can kind of go through it again. Um, I want to set it up for you. It's been a, a couple of weeks since I've been around, but I thought I'd like to just summarize how we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is called the Mount of Olives in this section. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus who was doing the Passover meal. He had earnestly desired, he said in Luke 22, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. He's excited to have this great meal with his buddies. They're going to barbecue a lamb. They're going to have some great wine. It's going to be incredible. He's excited to have this Passover meal before he suffers. It's a little bit like what the membership meeting is going to be like. It's just a shameless plug for the membership meeting. You should consider coming to the membership meeting next week, which will be awesome. We'll have great food, maybe some beer, maybe some wine, maybe some diet soda. You should consider that. Seriously, we'd, we'd love to have you. Anyways, back to Jesus. Earnestly desiring to eat the Passover meal with his buddies. Okay, they have this great meal. They have this great time together of hanging out. And then he changes everything. He, he breaks some bread and he passes it around and he says... This is like the, my body that's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup, the wine, and he passes it around and he says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's changing the old covenant and he's establishing a new covenant. The old covenant was you had to sacrifice a lamb to cover your sins, and you had to do it regularly because the lamb's blood wasn't enough. To eliminate your sin, it just covered it. Kind of like Febreze covers an odor. doesn't actually eliminate it. This is what I view the old covenant like. It just covers your sin. doesn't actually eliminate it. Jesus is saying the old covenant is gone. The new covenant is here. You're not going to sacrifice a lamb. The lamb of God will be sacrificed for you, and it will eliminate sins. It will wash them completely away. There will be no need for another sacrifice because my blood will be poured out for you. What an epic scene. He's changing everything. He has this great meal. He tells him this, and then we're continuing to do communion all together every week and in other situations for thousands of years now. So he's having this great moment, and then it takes a turn. He says, but somebody's gonna betray me. And he calls out Judas here. Someone's going to betray him. And, and the disciples start arguing. Who is it going to be that's going to betray him? And they're like, is it you, man? Is it you? Like, it's not me. I've been with him forever. It's not me. I've been, I've been here since the beginning. It's not me. I've been with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they start arguing about not only who isn't going to betray him, but who's the greatest. And Jesus says, just stop. Just stop. That's not, how, that's not what we're doing. And then Simon, Peter, pipes up a little bit more than everybody else, it seems like. And so he is he, talking to the whole group and then he hones in on Peter and says, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. You're my closest ally. You're one of my closest friends and you're gonna deny that you know me three times before the, before the crow or uh, chicken, whatever this, whatever this thing is. Rooster, thank you. Rooster crows. <laughs> it's been like a month since I've done this. I feel like I'm a little rusty. <laughs> Now, it's not a crow, but I think they crow. <laughs> okay, so I'm setting this up. So this is, what, so this is what's happening. His disciples, thick-headed disciples don't understand fully what's going on. Somebody's going to betray him. Somebody's going to deny him. That sets us up for this discussion on the Mount of Olives. And so I'm going to start reading at verse 39. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, called the Garden of Gethsemane in one of the other uh, parallel passages. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter, enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Okay, that's the, we're going to stop there. That's That's the section that we're talking about. What is so intense about this scene? It's his agony that he's going through. It's his humanity that we get to see here. There's two parts to Jesus. Fully God, fully man. We see humanity and we see divinity when we're, when we're talking through Jesus, when we're walking through Luke. And what's the, what, what are the, the things that like jump out at us? Well, it's his power, it's his divinity. When he can look at a situation and say, oh, we need food for 5,000. Let me pray to my father. Let me take this kid's food and let me multiply it for everybody. Like, I feel like he does it like, oh, I got this, you know, cool and collected. Let me just handle this and he gets food for everybody. Or he's, he's talking with a guy that's got this horrific ailment, whatever it is. He can't walk. He can't see. He says, oh, I got this. Uh, your faith has made you well. Open your eyes. You can see now. Not a big deal. Like It's, it's his divinity. He's got, he's got the power to prophesy. He can see the future. He can see what's going on. He's tempted by Satan, but that doesn't seem to, to, to cause him any concern. He's not sweating. He's handling it this is a very different picture of Jesus, isn't it? This is his humanity coming through. And it's a little bit, it kind of bothers me to say this. And I, and I wondered like, is this heresy? But like, I can see Jesus's weakness in the garden of Gethsemane. I can see that he's fearful. Jesus be fearful. Doesn't that sound like, can I I, like, do I say that? Can I say that? But it is, he's fully man. And fully man, and, and, and gals too, what, what do we experience? Weakness, and, and pain, and suffering, and agony, and fear, and intimidation, distress. This is what we see from Jesus. We have to see his humanity in this section. That's what's being highlighted for us. So how is he suffering here? He's suffering emotionally, He's he's in agony. As you can hear, he's he's distressed. He's sorrowful even to death, which we'll we'll cover in just a second. It's emotional, but it's also physical. It says he is sweating like great drops of blood. Let me spend a couple minutes on this because this, at first you think, is it blood or is it like great drops of blood? And I don't know that it's clear whether it is or whether it isn't. There's some arguments to be made. Actually, Josh Rice, who preached last week, thinks it wasn't great drops of blood. But, but it doesn't sound like it. It's like great drops of blood. But who says that? Oh, man, that guy was sweating like great drops of blood. I don't think that was a thing. People aren't saying that. Sweating bullets, I think, is the only thing I could come up with, like, like a metaphor. And I honestly don't even know what that's referring to. I meant to look that up. Sweating like great drops of blood. Every commentator I read this week, even though it's unclear, said it is blood. It is blood. It must be blood. There's no reason to add that in here. It doesn't make sense. It sounds like it might not be, but it is blood. What if it is blood that he's sweating? Does that matter? Does that matter to us? That kind of changes things, doesn't it? Why? Because Jesus' blood is holy. He's sweating blood. He's shedding blood right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. What do we know about the blood of Jesus now? It washes away our sins. we got a new covenant. Anytime we see Jesus shedding blood, we should take notice. It elevates this passage. When I think about the shed blood of Jesus, what do I think about? I think about him on the cross. Isn't that what we all think about? Jesus bled and died on the cross for us. But that's just where it ended. It started before that. It started when they twisted together a a crown of thorns and they shoved it onto his head. And his blood was being shed down down his face. That's redemption blood right there. That's the blood that was used to pay for our sins. And then how about before that when they're whipping him and flogging him? Is he bleeding during that? Of course and then how about in the garden? Even before that, even before he's physically touched, he's, he's sweating blood. This is, this is where it started. It ends on the cross. It looks like if it is blood, it starts right here. So when we think about the gospel, when we think about the, the, the blood that was shed to pay for our sins, we can think about the garden of Gethsemane and not just the cross. Why? is he sweating blood? No, I'm sorry. I forgot something. Hold on. Adam Clark. Just so you know that this isn't my, that I'm not just coming up with this idea. I read this commentary from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, which he said in 1860, he referenced somebody else named Adam Clark. And in the 1700s, this other guy has this to say about the sweating blood. Last thing before we move on. How exquisite must this anguish have been when it forced the very blood through the coats of the veins and enlarged the pores in such a preternatural manner as to cause them to empty it out in large successive drops. And this is interesting. This guy Adam Clark says, in my opinion, the principal part of the redemption price was paid in this unprecedented and indescribable agony. It's not just me. Other people are saying that this is the redemption started in the Garden of Gethsemane. That makes this scene that we're we're looking into, this makes it that much more intense. So, why is he suffering so bad? Why is he in so much agony that he would sweat blood? He saw the cup. God showed him the cup. What is the cup? talk about the cup all the time. What is up with the cup? The cup, before Jesus' time even, was a way to punish people. They would sit somebody down that had some punishment coming to them. They would fill it with poison. They would make him drink the, the cup. It was punishment. Jesus sees the punishment. He sees the wrath of God that's coming to him. And he is, and he is in agony. He is in serious distress over this cup. But it's not just the, the physical suffering that he's going to have to endure. It's not just, it's not just that, that that he's stressing over. Plenty of people have looked into, into physical suffering and handled it without any kind of, any kind of uh, experience like he's having. There's something more to it than just the physical suffering. It's the abandonment of his father that, I, that, that, uh, that uh, Keller says is what is really distressing him. You think of if some of you came to me who I don't know and said, hey, Tim, just so you know, that was a terrible sermon. Uh, We are all now dumber because what you have just said. I I would be hurt, okay, a little bit. I'd be like, wow, that was brutal. But if somebody that I know and trust, like like Jesse comes and says, it, or Ryan, or, or any of those guys back there, come and say, like, these are guys I've known for a long time. If they said, Tim, that was a terrible sermon, you should never speak again, uh, we're out. I'm going to abandon you. Oh, that that stings a little more. Or if my wife were to say that, like, oh, how much more close of a relationship does Jesus have with the Father than any relationship that we've ever known, like, it's, it's infinitely more intimate, the relationship with Jesus and his father, and his father is about to abandon him in his time of incredible, incredible, desperate need. He can see that coming, and it wrecks him. Another quote. I found this uh, through Keller. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death, it is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. And then Jonathan Edwards says the agony Jesus Christ experienced in the garden was caused by a vivid, full, bright, immediate view. Of the wrath of God. Jesus would be abandoned by everybody, not just, not just God. He's abandoned by his disciple. He's, a, he's abandoned by his, his best friend, one of his best friends, and Peter. But he's also abandoned by his father, and he's left alone to deal with this cup, this punishment. Are you in pain? Are you suffering through something? Are you in agony? We had a, a service here yesterday for the Ewings. We lost a, lost a brother. People lost a, a son, a friend. Oh man, it's un, unbearable. The agony losing a loved one can bring. Or losing a relationship. Or losing a, a marriage maybe losing a job, losing your dignity because you did the very thing that you never thought you'd do, maybe betraying Jesus or denying Jesus. Do you feel any of that agony? Have you felt any of that agony? Listen, you've got to know Jesus can relate in his humanity. I have seen this This section of scripture and it has brought me some solace because I know as I'm struggling through something, Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. We feel alone. Jesus was alone to deal with the the suffering and the pain of this world. Jesus can relate in his agony. Let's move on. So we see him in his agony, and then we see him respond to his agony. How does he respond? He acknowledges his fears to others. Then he gets alone. Then he acknowledges his fears to God. This is how he responds. Acknowledging his fears to others, he gets alone, and then acknowledges his fears to God. I got to flip to Mark uh, 14, 32, because the same story is written through a little different a little different perspective, and so Mark fourteen thirty two is the same exact story, but, but gives you a little bit more detail. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. This is the first thing he does. He sets it. We don't see this in Luke, but we see it in Mark. He walks into this garden of Gethsemane. He sets down some disciples and says, sit here and pray. So he, so he ditches eight of them, right, in one, in one spot. And then he walks. He takes Peter, James, and John. He walks down a little bit further. And then he huddles up and says, guys, I am greatly distressed. I am sorrowful even to death. I am so sad and I am so broken that I feel like my heart might give out and I might just die. Keller, Tim Keller thinks he was distressed in part because he thought he might die before he even made it to the cross. He's so broken and in such agony. But he's te- you see what he's doing? He's got his best buddies. He's got his best friends around him. And, and he's communicating like, clearly and, and, and honestly to them. Listen, I need your help. You should know that I am greatly distressed and I am so sorrowful. I am so sad. This is the first thing we could, we could learn. We're not meant to go through pain and suffering and agony and distress on our own. We've got to have a community around us so we can offload some of this. So somebody has an opportunity to know what's going on inside of us. We see Jesus do that. We should be doing that. That's the first thing we see. And then what does he do? He sets them down and he goes a little further. He goes a stone's throw away and he gets alone. Why is he getting alone? He's eliminating distractions. He's eliminating everything. It's good to be around others, but we also need to spend time alone when we're going through this so that we can process what is happening to us, what is happening in our lives, what, is, what are the feelings that we're, that we're um, experiencing. How difficult is it for some of us to sit quietly and to process some of the garbage that's been going on in our lives. I'm getting better at this, but man, I'm mostly terrible at it. I I will do anything but sit quietly and certainly not sit quietly and think about all the bad things that are happening or, or a specific event that's going on. That's the last thing I want to do. What do you want to do with or guys? Mostly, what do you want to do when things are broken? I want to fix them. Let me add it. Let me fix it. Let me get, let me get after it. I can do, I can make this better. I can, I can, I can do something. I can, let let me accomplish something. Let me, let me build something. Let me, I don't know, clear a piece of property. I don't know what the farmers are doing. I want to drive a tractor for a while. I want to, I want to, I want to work on my business. I want to work on my career. Like, this is helpful. I'm going to just put this on the shelf, this pain and suffering over here, and I'm going to get after something, and I want to fix it. I want to I be able to look and make progress in my life. I want to see that I'm, if I'm making progress, that means things aren't that bad. That might be helpful to your business. That might be helpful to your farm. That might be helpful to your career. It's not going to be helpful for your emotionally emotional well-being when you just categorize that stuff and you, you distract yourselves with work. Work is great. I love work. I can talk about work way, way too much. I mean, sometimes we got to stop that. we got to get distractions out of our way. we got to stop thinking about work. We've got to stop thinking about lots of stuff. And we got to focus on the pain and the suffering and the agony that we're going through. You can't work it off. You can't drink it off, which is another way you can distract yourself. You can't eat it off. You can't spend it off. How endless ways to distract ourselves from pain and suffering. What did the disciples do? The disciples are struggling. They're exhausted. They thought Jesus was going to usher in this great kingdom and they were going to be little princes in his new kingdom. They thought he was going to go do business with the Romans. It was going to be awesome. They're figuring it out now. Jesus is not here to destroy the Romans. The Romans are actually going to destroy Jesus. Oh, my gosh. The realization of these guys who have been following Jesus around for how many years? Three or so years. And they're like, what? you're going to die now? You're going away? I've I based my whole life on this? What do you mean you're going to die? Then they find out somebody's going to betray Jesus. They find out that the, one, of the, one of the lead guys, Peter, is going to deny him. They are struggling bad. And what are they doing? How do they distract themselves? Jesus tells them, hey, stay awake and pray, will you? Let's process this. Let's work on this together. They fall asleep. They're trying to sleep it off. That's how they, that's how they deal with this. If we distract ourselves and we're not getting alone, focusing on what we're going through, processing this with others and by ourselves, we're missing an opportunity to relate with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is an opportunity for us to create another point of connection with our Lord and Savior, the one who's fully God but who's fully man and struggling bad. can't be distracted. We need to take those feelings to Jesus and see how he is suffering. And then we need to acknowledge our fears like Jesus did to God. Alone, undistracted, we pour out our hearts to God the Father. This is what he does. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says, private prayer, prayer, solitary prayer is the best prayer. He says, no other prayer is as good as the one that no one hears except for God. Here's what he says. He withdrew even from his three best friends about a stone's throw. And then he, and then he addresses the, the people he's speaking to. Believer, especially in temptation, be much in solitary prayer as private prayer is the key to open heaven, so it is the key to shut the gates of hell. As it is a shield to prevent, so it is the sword with which to fight against temptation. And Jesus is being tempted to avoid this pain and suffering that, he's, that is placed in front of him, just to be clear. Family prayer, social prayer, prayer in the church will not suffice. These are very precious, but the best ones are your private devotions where no ear hears but God. Take yourselves to solitude if you would overcome. Isn't that intense? This is the prayer that God loves to hear. Why? Because it's real and it's honest and it's ugly sometimes. It's not, it's not something that you want to advertise to other people or you communicate like earnestly is what it says Jesus, how Jesus was praying. Earnestly communicating to God, I'm broken like a, fa- like a child communicates to his father. Daddy, father, like I need your help. I can't handle this. I can't, I can't experience this any longer. I'm not gonna be able to hold up. We pray alone and then we pray persistently to God. In that Mark account, he says it, it says that he prays three times and he prays the same prayer. He goes, he sets the disciples aside and he says, God, will you take this cup from me, please? And then he goes back and says, Hey, wake up, guys, pray with me. And then he goes back and he prays the same prayer. God, I pray that you would remove this cup from me. And then he goes back, Hey, are you still sleeping? Get up. And then he goes back and he says, God, will you, will you remove this cup from me? It's like persistent, it's nonstop, it's relentless. Jesus is using. The parable that he told just a couple chapters before this. The parable of the persistent widow. Do you remember this? Jesus tells this parable. He says, there's this widow that goes to this judge and says, uh, Judge, give me justice over my adversary. And the judge is like, get out of here. I don't have time for this. But she goes back the next day. Give me me, uh, justice over my adversary. Now I don't want to deal with this. And she goes back. She's relentless. And she's persistent. Goes back and back and back. And finally, what does the judge do? He says, fine, because I don't want to be bothered anymore, I will answer your request. This is the story that Jesus tells. And then Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. All that to say, we need to be persistent in our prayer like Jesus was persistent to the Father. We need to pray earnestly, or we need to be alone. We need to pray earnestly. We need to pray persistently. And then we need to pray a prayer of submission. God, this is how I feel. God, this is what I want. God, will you take this from me? God, I don't think I can handle it. But not my will, but thy will be done, is what he ends with. He says, "I'm not going to prescribe the way it should go, God. Whatever, whatever is your, whatever is in your plan, I will be satisfied with that. Not my will, but Thy will. Like, oh, you want to have all your prayers answered? Just end them with that. Whatever you want to do is fine. You're the one that knows everything. Not my will, but Thy will. How does the Lord's prayer go? Hallowed be Your name. Your will be done on earth." as it is in heaven, like that's what we're praying. That's what Jesus is praying. That's, that's what we should be praying. There's so many ways to distract ourselves from pain and suffering. There's so many ways to avoid pain and suffering, challenges, difficulty, even inconveniences. Jesus doesn't avoid the pain and suffering. Jesus enters into the agony. Jesus doesn't avoid the cup. He drinks the cup, the full wrath of God. He sees how sinful we are, right? He gets a a real clear glimpse of this when his friends are betraying him and denying him and abandoning him. He sees how sinful we are, and he sees how awful the wrath of God is, and he drinks the cup. In a sense, God, God is showing him like either I remove the cup and everybody dies or you take the cup and everybody lives. What's it going to be, Jesus? And this little note about an angel comes and strengthens him and it looks like gives him to the resolve. And then in a sense, he says, I love them so much. I will endure even this for them, even this for us, for all of us. Are you guys rejoicing over that? Do you, do you see the do you see the, the thing that was done for you? Do you see the, the cup that was drank for you? Do you see what he endured for us if you don't if you're not rejoicing over it? You misunderstand it at, at best, and you may be abandoning Jesus at worst, but he still reaches out for us anyways. He still dies for us anyways. He was abandoned so we wouldn't be abandoned in our darkest moments. He suffered so that we would not completely end suffering, but the penalty of sin would pass from us. Here's the message. Here's, let me just boil it down. We are saved from agony. And some of us just need to hear that. Some of you just need to sit and you need to process that. But we are also, once you understand that, we are saved to agony. We're saved from the cup, and we are saved to the cup. What does that mean? We can't be surprised about fiery trials. It says in, in 1 Peter 4.12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. What does that say? He didn't just die to eliminate all suffering from our lives. That He took the cup. He took the penalty of our sin. But when we understand that, when that washes over us, when we rejoice over that, that leads us back into the fight. To share in his sufferings. Not just to embrace pain for the sake of embracing pain. So that we can point to the glory that is to be revealed. Point to the end of pain and suffering. He took the cup. We're saved from the cup because of that. But we are saved to the cup. Can that be? Are we really supposed to drink that same cup? James and John and Mark have have this request of God. They say, God, when your your kingdom comes in, put one of us at your right hand and one of us at your left hand in in your kingdom. And Jesus says, do you you have any idea what you're asking? He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they say, we are able it sounds a little bit like Peter. He says, I would go to prison or even to death with you. A little overconfident. You are able to drink the cup? And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Dang, that sounds intense. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. We are saved from the cup We are saved to the cup. We are saved from agony. We are saved to agony. We are saved from suffering. And we are saved so that we can get back in the game and go find somebody that's suffering and go help them with that. Go care for them. Go support them. Go encourage them. Go lift those heavy burdens with whoever is suffering, whoever is going through pain and agony. That's what we're supposed to do. Some of us just need to sit and, and be saved from the agony that we're in, in the midst of. But some of us have been saved. You've, you've seen it. It's washed over you. You've been saved from the cup. Now get back out there and help somebody. It reminds me of this kid. I'm coaching Henry's basketball team. And this kid gets hurt every game, multiple times. And, and it's like, all right. Like somebody slaps his hand and he starts to cry. And I think, oh my gosh, Okay. And you get down like, hey, buddy, are you all right? You ready to stop the whole game? Are you okay? You get your hand slapped. and you going be all right? And he, you know, he's looking at me and he's like, yeah, I think, I think I'm all right. Okay. And you smack him and get him back in. Now go get make a basket, you know? Get back in there. This is what Jesus does to us. Like, hey, are you okay? Are you all right? I've suffered. I know what you're going through. I know what you've been through. I know what you're going to go through. I've, I've been there. I can relate to you. And then you look up and you think, seriously? Like, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, he suffered, he did that? Yeah. He smacks us on the behind and says, now get back in there and go help somebody. You're stable now, now that you understand this, the challenges and the, and the pain and the suffering and the, and the agony, like it doesn't have the ability to hurt us anymore. We can stand confidently. We can stand and in, 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 in be stable in the midst of this. And, and maybe we can take someone's cup for them and say, I got this, man. Let me at least help you with this. I'll come alongside you shoulder to shoulder. I can't make it go away. Pain and suffering, as long as we're here in this world, it's broken, we're going to have to deal with it. But there's ways to deal with it. Don't avoid it. You can't. Just a little tip. Don't distract yourself from it. Don't embrace it just to embrace it. Sounds cool. It's not. It's dumb. Because of Jesus, we are saved from that. Because of Jesus, we are saved to agony. Agony. Let's pray and we'll invite the band and and the ushers forward. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible scene. It's, It's horrific, but it's hopeful at the same time. I can't believe what, what he had to experience, what that must have been like. I have no idea. But, we can, but we, can, we can think about it. We can spend time trying to understand what it was like for your son to, to see the wrath of God coming at him and not just the wrath of God, but being abandoned by you, the one that he lives wholly for. I pray, Father... That we would see this in a new life, a new light. That we would be encouraged by this, this intense and this dramatic scene here in the garden. I pray that we would be strengthened. We don't have the angel show up and strengthen us, but we have the Holy Spirit. There's some, there's some maybe connection there. We, We don't have this angel, but we have the Holy Spirit that comes and helps us and strengthens us, and and help us survive, help us us handle pain and suffering, help us walk in the midst of agony. Pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit, everybody here, that we would feel that, that after understanding that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, that we would be a little more strong, that we would be a little more stable, and then we we could look out, and we could find somebody to help. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.